There is such a thing called conscious consciousness. In terms of consciousness. In terms of consciousness. What consciousness is. You're listening to Explain the Brain from the Mind Science Foundation. I'm Audrey Quinn. Dr. Joy Hirsch remembers the exact moment when it happened. I was in my lab here at Yale. I read this thing in science and I thought, oh my God. I read it again and I thought the same thing. I thought, oh my God, this is amazing that this could be done. It was 1990. Scientists had confirmed that they could see where activity happened in the brain. Active areas in the brain recruit new blood coming in, and they could see which areas were active by seeing that new blood using magnets. It's the technique we now call functional magnetic resonance imaging, fMRI. I was studying visual psychophysics, that is, the relationship between the human visual system and the stimuli that we use to understand it. Um, But the brain was always a black box because we couldn't get in. We couldn't watch it. We couldn't see it in live, awake human beings. But that's what we really wanted to understand. So what this paper meant to me was that we had a microscope, finally, that would let us look at the human brain in action. And I thought, this is, okay, it's over. This is now a whole new era. Joy was already something of a prodigy at Yale, a young scientist who had solved an important question in neuroscience, how our vision can be better than you'd expect based on the way our eyes are made. But Yale didn't have an MRI machine. Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Research Center in New York City did. I knew it was a seed change and was willing to resign a tenured position at Yale to go to Memorial Sloan Kettering and to start to work on this new new field. Did that feel like a lonely decision to make? It was a very scary decision. I mean, and all my friends said I was nuts. I mean, how many women who had earned tenure at Yale very early on in their career would just drop it for no reason other than to go on to do something that had never been done before. I mean, people said, what? Have you lost your mind, girl? And I didn't know what to say, because I probably had lost my mind, but that's what I was going to do anyway. How long before it felt rewarding once you got there? It took me two years to find that signal. March 3rd, 1993, I knew I had a signal. So this is, this is just getting the technology up to snuff to be able to see this. That's right. It was very, very difficult. We had, I had to write all my own code. There was very little software. And so so you, were, you were basically creating fMRI from scratch, it seems like. Well, I was, the, the signal was already published. And what I was doing was beginning to develop techniques to um, acquire the signal. The subject was wearing a helmet with a mirror on it, and the mirror allowed the subject in the scanner to look out, and I had to project a picture of, say, a flashing checkerboard trying to stimulate the visual system. We failed and failed and failed, and then I realized that probably one of the reasons that we were failing was because checkerboards weren't very interesting to the visual system unless they were flashing, and so... 
there was no way to get a checkerboard to flash because I was using a standard projector. And so one day I yanked an old fan off of an old deck computer and I wired it up on a resistor. And I put this, this fan in front of the lens of the projector and I tweaked the resistor until I got the fan to go at a slow enough speed that it made the checkerboard uh, flash. And that's when I got my first signal. But so shortly after that, we ran this and a few other experiments that were thought were reasonably successful. And I presented my work at an optical society meeting that year. And it was one of the most discouraging moments of my life because it, it was not a technique that was well accepted. And uh, my friends and colleagues said things to me like, Hirsch, you've got a long ways to fall. I can't tell you how many people have screwed up their careers because they got involved in a technology. Uh, you're not going to teach us anything that we don't already know with this technique, etc., etc., etc. The Luddites were everywhere. But Joy kept going. She decided there were plenty of people studying the visual system. She wanted to branch out into other topics. And first, she started looking at language. And as it turns out, I had some assistance from a graduate student who joined my lab about that time. He was an MD-PhD student, Carl Kim. And he had come to the United States from Korea. And a second language was a big issue for him. Uh, he had to learn English as a teenager. It was not easy for him. And so this was a topic that was on his mind. And so between the two of us developing this new technology and realizing that language was a really important topic that could be studied with this technique, it was virgin territory, relatively speaking. And Carl, my student, was profoundly and intensely interested in this topic. And so all these things came together. She and Carl were curious to see how your brain processes a new language different from your native language. And they found that when people pick up a new language after about the age of 11, the language production part of their brain, it's called Broca's area, it dedicates new territory just for that new language. But the language reception area, Wernicke's area, it processes both the new and old language in the same way. They totally overlap in location. So your second language gets communicated differently than the old, but received in the same way. She went on to study language processing in coma patients, figured out techniques to make brain surgery safer by mapping out the language areas in a person's brain. And there was work outside language, too. Research on appetite, fear, face recognition, memory. At what point did you feel like, okay, I made it, this switch was worth it, I am studying things using this technology that you couldn't do with other technologies? I don't think I ever looked back. I, I think from the first moment that I saw that signal that um, I knew that, this was, that I was doing what I wanted to do. But over decades of this work, something started to nag at her. The fMRI tube, for all its wonders, meant she was always looking at people one at a time in isolation, which totally overlooks an important part of human functioning. And the question that one could never get at was the question of what is the neurocircuitry that actually drives two people in interaction? 
Wow, it kind of makes you look back at all the other research and realize, oh, we were always studying the brain in solo mode. Well, yes, and that's the truth. We were. We were so excited about all of the progress that could be made understanding principles of human brain organization and its dynamics. It was just a, an amazing run in neuroscience. And nothing can take that away from the science. It's just time to move on. So once again, Joy started a new lab, this time back at Yale. And she's working on another imaging technology, near-infrared radiation spectroscopy, NEARS. While fMRI measures blood flow in the brain by measuring the way it affects the spin of magnets, NEARS detects where new blood is in the brain by measuring the absorption of lasers. When you learned about this, did this feel like your new fMRI, the new game changer for you? Yeah, it did. It did. I, it did. It, it felt like, oh, here we go again. Been there, done that, but somehow I can't resist. <laughs> NEARS has actually been around since the mid-80s, but it didn't get a lot of use. The resolution's not as high as fMRI, and it can't look as deep into the brain. But it's strong enough to see activity in the language regions of the brain. And it's small and mobile. People can be interacting pretty much like normal when they're hooked so up to it. this is it. And basically, what we have here are two places where people sit across from each other. And these are the... Um, Joy's lab does the imaging in a room about the size of a doctor's exam room. Two people sit at tables across from each other, and they wear these netted caps covered in little laser senders and receivers. This day that I was visiting, they're setting up for a study where they're just training their machines to recognize smiles. The research subjects will have the NEARS cap on, and there will also be a camera and eye trackers focused on them. And to make sure the subject is giving a natural smile, the researchers present a slideshow of images across a computer screen. <laughs> More grumpy cat. And it's a baby with a fruit sticker on its head. <laughs> oh, it's hysterical. Bulldog on a skateboard. They're basically internet memes. A bulldog on a skateboard. I mean, you can't, you, you have to smile. In all seriousness, though, the lab's already gotten some pretty significant findings having to do with eye contact. Joy's finding that when people just sit there and exchange eye contact, something interesting happens in their brain. No word has to be spoken. No, no messages have to be communicated. But just eye contact is enough to upregulate Wernicke's area, Broca's area, and some of the social areas of the brain. It's as if eye contact is almost that first language. It jumpstarts the system. Well, that's a really, really important observation, actually. Um, so exchanging, so, I just want to make sure I get this right, is that exchanging eye contact, it activates the same receptive and production areas in your brain as exchanging words would. As exchanging words, right. And what that says is that the, the eye contact is a fundamental driver of neural function. And that it's much more fundamental than what we ever thought. It doesn't just start with the visual system. It bounces off the visual system and literally drives not only the language system, but also a receptive system that opens channels to be sensitive to interpret gestures, facial cues. So we think that we've kind of discovered the headwaters of neural activity. And it doesn't come from inside the brain. It comes from outside the brain comes from that other person that you're looking at. 
And that's a new way of thinking about neuroscience. And we're beginning to understand ways in which we can capture these send and receive signals that go on, that are spontaneous, they're rapid, they're interpreted by the brain in ways that have never been able to look at before. And what do you see about these signals? Um, they're there. <laughs> they're there. Um, one of the suggestions based on these findings that I've made is that there are parts of the brain that are designed to integrate these signals that we've never seen before when we're looking at systems alone, when we're looking at a, the, the language system alone. Kind of a... <laughs> kind of a master social region? Um, it involves social systems. It's a, it's a master organizer. It's not just social. It's, it's interpretive, but it gathers information from all kinds of sensory systems. Is I, w I wanted to ask, is you have studied such a breadth of topics in your career. You've done sensory system. You've looked at memory. You've looked at appetite. Why now, why at this point in your career do you want to study human interaction? Because I think it's the most interesting question. This seems to me to be the area that is the most, it's one of the biggest questions of all in neuroscience. It's one of the most challenging. It's one that takes, I don't want to say a brave person, because I think it gives, my, gives me maybe too much credit, but I have the resources. I have tenure. I've got a laboratory. I've got, I've got a responsibility, I think, to take a leadership role in driving new science um, that's, that's based on really solid foundation. And so I do it because I can. For Explain the Brain, I'm Audrey Quinn. To learn more about the Mind Science Foundation, go to mindscience.org. This last month, Explain the Brain's top listener city was Los Angeles, California. To help make your city a top city, spread the word about our podcast or leave a review on iTunes. Mm -hmm.